The following message was recorded at Christ Church in Bartlett, Tennessee. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.ccbartlett.org. We sing today, we know we just agree with heaven that is singing now, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as Peter already said, holy is not even enough. You're even more than that. And so, God, for us to sing holy, holy, holy for the rest of eternity, God, it's not enough. And, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to know you, the holy God. Um, So, God, this morning as we open your word, give us understanding. We need you. We need your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been in the series, Love Is. We've been going through the definition of love and we've learned a lot about love. We've learned that love is important. When Jesus said that all of the law and the prophets hangs on two things, he said it hangs on love God and love people. We've learned that love is a choice, which is great, great news for us because our feelings are fickle and we can't trust our emotions, but we can always make the choice to love. We've learned that love is patient, Love puts up with a lot for a long time with restraint. We've learned that love is kind. Love acts for the benefit of others regardless of their worthiness or response. We've learned that love doesn't envy. Love does not want what others have with resentment. Instead, love is happy for others. We've learned that love doesn't boast. Love doesn't brag on itself. It brags on Jesus and others. Love isn't arrogant. Love doesn't have an inflated view of itself. It's not puffed up. Love is humble. Love isn't rude, meaning love is polite. Love minds its manners, love is considerate. We learned last week that love doesn't insist on its own way. Love looks to the interests of others first while being willing to sacrifice to serve those interests. Today, we're gonna continue in our series in 1 Corinthians 13, we're gonna look at love is not irritable. Love is not irritable. Now, does that mean that we will never be angry or we will never be irritated? If we love people, then everything they do, there's no way we can't feel anger or we can't feel irritation. And I don't think that's true because we can't help it. We get angry. We get emotional. You think about on your way here, if we were honest and everyone were honest right now, you would confess there's got to be people in this room who at some point today, you were in traffic, somebody cut you off, somebody didn't let you in or whatever it was and you got angry and before you can think about it you were just angry we can't help that that anger it just it happens right it's something out of our control you watch a movie and you all of a sudden you feel these emotions and maybe you're angry and it doesn't matter that it's just a movie you feel that way or you watch sports and you and for some reason you're just you're emotionally upset because an 18 year old didn't put a ball in a hoop right and you can't control it and it's not reasonable and it's not rational but it happens And and those are our emotions. And the scriptures never say, don't be angry. It says, when you're angry, don't sin. The understanding is that we will get angry. Does this mean that we will never feel irritated? That everything people do for the rest of our lives, if we love them, will not irritate us? No, that's just not true. I think about my relationship with my wife. I was trying to think of things that she does that irritate me, but there's none. There's zero, right? Because she's, she's wonderful. And there's just, I was trying to think and there's just, she's perfect. But I know there are things I do that irritate her. I was thinking about different pet peeves that, that she has for me. And one of them, I have terrible junk drawer etiquette. Everybody has a junk drawer in their house, right? You have a junk drawer. You're not quite sure what's in there. The Holy Grail might be in there. You don't know. You never clean it out, but it's there. We have a junk drawer and I have terrible junk drawer etiquette. So one of the things I'll do is like, I'll clean it out. Like I'll throw stuff away and Angela will be like, hey, where's my blue thumbtack? 
And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she said, my blue thumbtack, I was saving it. It was on a bulletin board at the church when we got married. I've had that ever, I was gonna put it on an anniversary gift. You know, I have terrible, and then the other thing, whenever I dig through to find stuff through the junk drawer, I will pull everything out of it and leave it. Like I would just pull it out and I'll find what I got and I'll be like, someone will clean that up and I just walk away. And I won't even shut the door. I will leave it wide open and it drives her insane. But you made your choice. All right, so like we can't help it. We will be irritated. We will have our pet peeves. So what is Paul talking about here? Well, again, love isn't about our feelings. Love is a choice. So not being irritable, there's gotta be some choice involved here. So it's not about feeling anger or feeling irritated. I can't control that. But it's about the choices I make when I do feel anger or when I do feel irritated. The definition of irritable is becoming angry, uh, angry easily. Becoming angry easily. And so what does that mean? Well, if you were to take my kids to Cracker Barrel, which every time we go on a road trip, it doesn't matter. Like if we are going, if we're driving to Ohio, which we've done an unfortunate amount of times, or if we are driving to Lakeland, whatever a road trip is, right, we will, we will stop at a Cracker Barrel. If there's a Cracker Barrel, my wife has this GPS built into her brain, and she just, Cracker Barrel, and we stop. We always stop at a Cracker Barrel, and if you sit, if you, if you have the fortune or the misfortune, whatever, to go out to eat, with me and my four kids there at a Cracker Barrel, they put us at the big table and they try to put us in a corner away from everybody. You know the little, um, the little tees that are on the golf tees that are on the, of course you do, all right? And uh, you've done it before and it tells you you're an ignoramus. And uh, anyway, you give that to my daughter, like forget it. It doesn't matter. She's good. Like she is good. She completely embraced the golf tees and she's talking to them. And like one, like all of a sudden one's a princess and whatever. And she's fine. And you throw anything else away. That's fine. Hey, Piper Grace, here's a salt, here's a salt shaker. Excellent, right? It's snowing. Like she's fine. She is easily entertained. However, you give this to my oldest son, Max. He will take all the golf tees. He will make them disappear. And then he'll go, I won, where's the iPad? Like, that's it, like, that's it. He is not easily entertained at a Cracker Barrel. Well, what does that have to do with anything? My daughter is easily entertained. That means that when I give her something to entertain herself, she embraces it. She goes with it and she's easily entertained. My son is not easily entertained. When I give him something, he resists it and he rejects it. So when we talk about irritability, when we feel that anger and when we feel that, when we feel that irritation, hate is easily angered. Hate embraces the anger. It embraces being annoyed. It embraces that, that moment, whereas love doesn't. Love resists it. Love doesn't embrace that. And let me make it even more clear to you. When we talk about being irritated, love is not irritable. What does that irritability look like? Well, one, you have it there in your notes. One, I embrace my emotions. When I'm irritable, I embrace my emotions. And you know what I mean? When you feel that flash of anger, that flash of irritation, it just kind of hits you. Well, when I'm irritable, when I'm easily angered, I embrace those emotions and I go with it. You know what I'm talking about? When you have that thought of anger and you just grab onto it and you start to think about how unfair this is to you or you think about how annoying this thing is to you and that's what I do I embrace my emotions when I'm irritable and usually because of that my anger is completely disproportionate to the offense is that true you stew on that little word that someone said to you that made you so angry and then what 
Like after a while, you are ready to never talk to this person again. Over what? A word? But it doesn't matter. You just stewed over it and you're, you've, you've allowed it to grow in you and you've embraced it. And it's so unloving to embrace our emotions because when we do that, we don't embrace the other person. Like I'm just embracing how I feel right now and I'm gonna follow this feeling and my feelings don't really have anything to do with you. They're my feelings. They're not about you. They're about me. And so there's no room to give you the benefit of the doubt. There's no room to try to see it your way. No, no, no. It's just about me and my feelings. And that's what we do when we, when we start to, that's one of the things about being easily angered. We embrace our emotions. And then after I embrace my emotions, it leads me to display my irritation. I display my, my, how I'm irritated and, and my irritability. And what I mean is I wear my irritation on my sleeve. My facial expression displays it. My body language displays it. My eye rolls display it. The tone of my voice displays it. And that's hateful. Why? Because I'm communicating harshly. And you go, well, you haven't even said anything. There's this famous book in psychology and it's called Silent Messages. And in it, um, the psychologist has found this, has done this study about the, the way that people judge credibility um, from a speaker. And, and here was his finding, and it's still cited to this day. This book was written in 1971. 55% they, were, they judged their credibility based on their body language. 55% to body language. 38% to the tone and music of their voice. Only 7% to their actual words. We communicate a ton non-verbally. And when I display how upset I am and I display my anger and, and how annoyed I am and how, how irritable I am, it's, I'm communicating still and I'm doing it harshly. In the same way, you would think that it's hateful for me to speak rudely to someone because, because I'm irritated, right? It would be hateful if you took me out to lunch today and we went to uh, Firebirds, because you love me, that's a wonderful place, and we went to Firebirds and I was irritated. I didn't like, you know, I didn't like the cut of that waiter's jib. That was for you, Dad. All right, like I didn't like, I didn't like the way that, that they did a certain thing or, you know, whatever it was. Like maybe I ordered a, a salad and he accidentally brought me out a soup and I was just, I can't believe this guy. And I'm just all upset. And he comes back to the table and I speak really rudely to him and, and, and I say, uh, don't, don't quit your day job. I'm not good at this. Anyway, like, I don't know. I say something rude to him. That's hateful, right? That's hateful. Well, I'm irritated. It doesn't matter. That's hateful. Don't, don't speak harshly to somebody like that. What's the difference if I communicate non-verbally harshly? What's the difference if when the, the waiter comes back to the table, I'm standoffish and I have my arms crossed and I've got a, a mean look on my face? What's the difference? What if my tone, what if my words aren't harsh, but what if my tone is harsh? What's the difference? When we display our irritation, we're communicating, not, not verbally, but we're still communicating harshly and rudely. That's hateful. And so we, we display our irritation. And then after I've embraced my emotions and it's all over my face and it's all over the way that I'm communicating with my body, finally I act out. I elevate my preference above people. I, um, I speak harshly. I cut with my words. I'm demanding. I'm inconsiderate. I fly off the handle. I, I throw a fit. I have a tantrum, whatever it is. And this action is almost always at the expense of others, isn't it? Because in that moment, you've embraced your emotions and it's all over you and you're just all upset and all this other stuff. You can't consider other people. And irritability doesn't. And you're not considering other people. You're just all upset and you just got to let it out, right? You just got to get it out there. I just got to, oh, I'm just so upset and now I can tell you. 
And it's not, I don't care how you hear it. I just care that I get to say it. And that's where irritability leads us. We embrace our emotions, we display it, it's all over our face, and then we act out. And that's what irritation does. That's what being easily angered does. We feel that anger and then we embrace it. We embrace our emotions, we wear it all over ourselves, and then we act because of it. And that's what being irritable looks like. And you could sum up irritability in two ways, real quickly. Irritability lacks control and irritability lacks care. Irritability lacks control and it lacks care. It doesn't control itself when dealing with intense emotions. It doesn't. It embraces those emotions. It just gives up control. And it doesn't care about how it affects others. It doesn't, it doesn't care. Uh, it lacks self-control and it doesn't care uh, about how it affects others. And I want us to look at an, an incident in Jesus' life um, in Mark chapter 6. If you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 6. As we look at this, maybe this is a story that you're really familiar with. You don't have a Bible. There might be some under your chairs. Uh, you can use that. And if you want to take that with you, that's our gift to you. Um, or you can use your smartphones or whatever or sit uncomfortably close to the person next to you who brought their Bible. Whatever you want to do. Mark chapter 6. We're going to start there in verse 7. And as we look at this, this might be a really familiar passage. But what I want you to do is I want you to look at the disciples because they're going to display what irritability is. They're gonna show it. We're gonna see them being irritable. And I don't want you to look at it and do what we often do, what I do anyway, where I look at it and I'm like, those silly little disciples. No, I want you to look at it and just see yourself because I see myself here. I see myself acting out in the same way that they are. And we're gonna learn some things about irritability here um, and how to deal with it properly. So Mark chapter six, look there beginning in verse seven. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So Jesus sends his disciples out on their first mission trip, basically. All right, it's time. Let's get out there. Start telling people to repent. Tell people about me. I'm gonna give you power over unclean spirits. You're gonna cast demons out. You're gonna heal people. It's gonna be awesome. Go, look, I'm gonna, you're gonna have to really exercise your faith muscle here, okay? Don't bring anything with you. I'm gonna provide for you. Just go. So he sends them out on their journey. And then skip over to verse 30. It says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate, a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So they come back from this mission trip and they are wiped out. They have worked hard. They've been walking everywhere. They've been dealing with demons and healing people and, and, and they are wiped out. And it says that where, when they come back to tell Jesus, hey, this is all we've done and all this other stuff, there are so many people that are still following them, still pressing in on them in Jesus. It says they can't even eat. You been busy like that before? Where, where you go, oh, I haven't, oh, you haven't eaten today. You've just been that busy. You know what I'm saying? That's what they're dealing with. They're coming off of this really hard work and they can't even eat. And so Jesus says, look, you need to come away. Come away with me. Let's go to a desolate place and let's rest. So Jesus calls them to that. Look at verse 32. And they went uh, away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Cool, they're gonna finally get some rest. Look at verse 33. 
Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So the disciples, finally, we're on the boat, we're with Jesus, we're back, we're all back together, we had a great trip, finally, now we can rest. We haven't been able to even eat, we've been so busy. Okay, sweet, this is a nice boat ride, I like this. They get closer to the shore, they're getting, they're getting to their vacation, right? And they pull up to that vacation spot, and who's there? Everybody they just left. People were like, hey, they're going over there. Let's get there. And they run around there and they beat them to the other side and they're just waiting. Hey, still help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. And so they're just, oh, they're just tired. You know what I mean? They're just feeling tired. And haven't you been there before? Especially if you're, you know, if you're a parent, you know, and you just, you get, you deal with one need after another and after another and after another. And then eventually they go to sleep and then you go lay down and you're like, oh, finally. And then the door opens and it's another kid. And he's like, ah, I want to sleep in your bed. And you're just, oh, I just want to sleep. And that's what's going on with these disciples. They are frustrated. They're frustrated and they're irritable and they're going to embrace that and they're going to show it. So let's check it out. Look at verse 34. When he went ashore, that's Jesus, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and began to teach them many things. So Jesus doesn't send them away. He doesn't say, hey, I get it. Let me get, let me get with you just a minute. Disciples, you guys go on ahead. You guys rest. I don't know. Jesus gets right back to work and wants to put them right back to work. Look at verse 35. And when it grew late, so they've been there a while, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate, desolate place and the hour's now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So the disciples, under the guise of taking care of everybody else, are saying, Jesus, look, super late. We've been here a while. They're probably hungry. They need to get, like, they need to get some sort of food in them. So why don't you just send them away to take care of themselves? Like, is it because the disciples deeply care for these people? No, not at all. Like, these are adults. If, this, if the adults don't want to eat, they won't eat. If, this, if adults want to go eat, they will go eat. And the disciples are going, no, they need to send them away so they can go eat. Jesus is embracing these people, and the disciples, they're frustrated. And, and remember, irritability doesn't care about people. So instead of looking at their needs and going, I will have compassion, I'll take care of them, what does irritability do? What do the disciples do? Send them away. Just get away from me. Those words ever come out of your mouth when you've embraced anger, when you're irritable? Just get away from me. And that's what irritability does. It pushes people away. And so then we have this really interesting exchange. Jesus says, okay, so you want to send them away? He says, look, you give them something to eat. You feed them. If you're so worried about them being hungry, you feed them. Now, here's the deal. The disciples had just done miracles. They've just healed sick. They've just cast out demons. And Jesus is basically saying, you know what? You want to do something cool? You want to do another miracle? You feed them. Check it out. It's going to be great. You feed them. He's inviting them to this miracle. What do the disciples respond with? Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? So the disciples immediately, I would say it's almost borderline sarcastic response to Jesus. Should we go just get the million dollars we carry around and go buy everybody a happy meal? Is that what you want, right? And so immediately they doubt that Jesus can do it. They're doubting God's power. They're rejecting what God's asking them to do. And then they're also like, they're, they're putting all the stress back on themselves. And that's what irritability does. 
the irritability is faithless and it's just embracing the problems and embracing their emotions and this is overwhelming and there's nothing we can do about it. And so then of course we know what happens. Jesus eventually, he takes a little bit of fish, a little bit of bread and he feeds 5,000 people. And, and you know who else he feeds? 5,000 people and 12 irritable babies. He feeds the disciples too. They get fed too. And so we see that there. And you know, we see the disciples, they embrace their emotions, they're upset and they're annoyed and they're tired. I just wanna rest and all these people with their hands out and they displayed their irritation. You got to know, you know, you know Peter was standing over there just doing this the whole time. You know it, right? You know they were, that was all over their face and then finally they act out. I don't know, James, are you gonna say something? You should, fine, I'm gonna say something. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something. Hey, Jesus, they need to go eat. Send them and get something to eat. They finally act out, pushing people away from them. They lack self-control and they lack care for others. And the disciples, they help us answer another question about irritability. When do we become irritated? When are we irritable? When are we easily angered? When are we more likely to embrace our emotions and display our irritation? When does that happen? What was the disciples' life like right then? They were physically exhausted. They were emotionally exhausted. They were spiritually exhausted. You ever been there before? Maybe you've been wrestling with something, like wrestling with a, a, a sin or something spiritual, some dark valley you're in and you're just spent. Or maybe you've been there for somebody emotionally. And like that costs you, doesn't it? It costs you. If you truly care about them, you're truly there, you're truly the shoulder to cry on, when they hurt, you hurt, you know? And it costs you something. And that's where they are, are physically exhausted. They haven't been sleeping. They don't have enough food. They're just, they've just had enough. And we've been there. And so we know that it's in these weak moments, we, we are more prone to not love. We're more prone to hate. When I'm physically exhausted, when I'm emotionally exhausted, when I'm spiritually exhausted, I'm more prone to not care about your needs. I'm more prone to embrace my emotions. In these weak moments, we need to stay close and stay dependent. Because one of the things that we also see about their irritability, what did it do to their faith? Jesus gives them an opportunity, come serve. Come serve, come feed them. This is gonna be great. Come participate in this. And what did they do to Jesus? They push him away. They don't trust him. It's, irritability's faithless. It's absolutely faithless. You don't need faith when you're embracing your emotions. You don't need faith when you're embracing anger and you're embracing worry and you're embracing anxiety. You don't need faith for that. And so irritability pushes them away from the one they need the most help from. It pushes, it pushes him away. Irritability is so hateful. Embracing our emotions, displaying our irritation, acting out, it's so hateful, it lacks self-control and it lacks care. So what's the positive definition here? Well, thankfully we have one in this story and it's Jesus. If hate's out of control, then love is controlled. Jesus displays this here. He didn't embrace his emotion, he didn't display his frustration or act out, he practiced self-control. He was controlled when he met the crowds. Jesus is tired too. Jesus says, let us go away to a desolate place. He doesn't say, you know what you guys need? You guys need a nap. You guys take a nap, I'm gonna take care of it or what? Jesus is serving too. Jesus is just as tired. Jesus has the same physical limitations as they do. He's hungry, he's tired. He shows up on shore, what was his plan? He said, let's go over here and rest. So when he shows up on shore, what happened to his plan? Derailed, completely derailed by these other people. And what does he do? Ugh. 
you guys again? No, what does he do? He controls himself. He controls his frustration. You don't think he felt that? Absolutely, I think he felt that. He absolutely felt frustration. His plans are derailed. He's tired. He knows his boys are tired over here, but he controls his response. And he tells, and, and, so, and so we see that instead of speaking harshly and instead of displaying frustration, right? People show up to him, I need healing. Oh, fine, you're healed. Like instead of showing how, how those frustrations and that anger or whatever, he, he controlled himself. He practiced self-control and he chose graciousness. He controlled himself with his disciples. The disciples pull up and they're immediately irritable. They're embracing their emotions. They aren't helping at all. And Jesus is out there working about, he never turns around and says, what's your problem? I'm just as tired. James, you're always eating. Stop it, right? Like, what is your problem? He doesn't do that. He's controlled with his disciples. When he gives them an opportunity to do a miracle with him and they reject him and they, they act like little babies and they reject him, he, con- he controls himself. He controls himself. He doesn't go off. He doesn't chastise them for being punks. He doesn't do that. He controls himself and he chooses to be gracious. Love is controlled. Self-control we see is a picture of God. God, Galatians 5, tells us the fruit of the Spirit. What's the last fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. It's a picture of God. And to be controlled when our emotions are telling us the opposite, when everything in us wants to do the other thing, wants to fly off the handle, wants to lose it, wants to let you have it, and you choose self-control, that's so loving. So when we're challenged and we're challenged at work, is our response controlled? When we're annoyed, is the look on our face controlled? When we're insulted, is our response restrained? Because love is, love is controlled. And you might say, I'm terrible at controlling myself. I can't do it. When someone insults me or what, I just, it's all over me immediately. I just, I'm the worst at it. Well, two things. One, ask God for help. Ask him to help you with that. It's a fruit of the spirit. You know what that means? It doesn't grow naturally in us. It's something he does in us. So ask him for help. But also, then just practice it. Practice it. There's this researcher. He's an Ivy League professor named Walter Mischel. Um, Nearly 50 years ago, he created a test called the Marshmallow Test. Anybody ever heard of the Marshmallow Test? Thank you. All right. Excellent. Nailed it. All right. We've got a college freshman studying psychology. All right. So... What he did was basically he put these five-year-olds in a room with marshmallows on a table and left them alone for 15 minutes. And he told them, don't eat the marshmallows. And he just left them there with, for five minutes. Now, I've thought about like doing that with my own children. Um, so like I got a bag of marshmallows and then I went to get the plate and the bag was gone. So that my experiment didn't work. Um, but he does this with these, with these uh, children. And the New York Times reports... Famously, preschoolers who waited longest for the marshmallow went on to have higher SAT scores than the ones who couldn't wait. In in later years, they were thinner, earned more advanced degrees, used less cocaine, which is an interesting point to put in here. I guess, like, all of the participants used cocaine. Like, of course they did, but these used less, so... Don't give your kids marshmallows, because apparently they all use cocaine. And earned more advanced degrees, um cope better with stress. As these first marshmallow kids now enter their 50s, Mr. Michelle and colleagues are investigating whether the good delayers are richer too. Now Michelle is an octogenarian and freshly wants to make sure that the nervous parents of self-indulgent children don't miss his key finding. And here it is. Whether you eat the marshmallows at age five isn't your destiny. Self-control can be taught. Ask God to grow that self-control in you and practice it. Think about your week. 
Go ahead. Think about tomorrow, Monday. I know you spend all weekend not, but do it right now. Just think about Monday. Think about your work situation, whatever it is where you typically do not practice self-control, where your frustration's all over your face instantly, where you take it out on other people. Think about that. You be there in that moment. That, that employee that, that, that always messes everything up, don't, she, she did it. She did it again. She messed everything up. Be right there. Be in that moment. And ask the Lord for help now. And, and be ready to practice self-control. Be thoughtful of, of what's my face like right now? What's the tone of my voice? How am I acting? Practice it. And let God do a work in you because love is control. The second thing we learn, if hate lacks care, then love is compassionate. Check out verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus didn't get there and dwell on how tired he was. And he didn't dwell on, on what he wanted and think of himself because where would that have led him? Irritability. That would have embraced his emotions. That would have embraced how he was feeling. Instead, he was thoughtful and he acted for the benefit of others. Irritation, irritability doesn't give thought to others. It's not considerate. It's too focused on now, how I'm feeling now, what I want now. Irritability, we've seen, what does it do? What does it do for the disciples? It moves us away from people, but compassion moves us towards others. So love chooses to care. It chooses to look at others, even when it really wants to look at itself. Because that's what irritability does. It really wants to look at me. I really want to think about how upset I am. I really want to think about how annoyed I am or angry I am. No, no, no. Love doesn't do that. Love chooses to look at the needs of others, even though it really wants to look at itself. And Jesus did that. He was tired. He wanted to eat. But he didn't look at that. He looked at the needs of others. He didn't ignore their needs. So do we love like that? When people have emotional needs, we move toward them, not away. When people have physical needs, we move towards them and not away. Love moves toward. Love chooses compassion. Even in the face of overwhelming difficulties, love chooses compassion. There's this book called Loving Like Jesus uh, by Philip Ryken. Um, it's been a great resource as I've gone through this series. And he has a chapter on irritability. And in it, he, uh, he tells the story of Mother Teresa. I want to tell it to you now. A well-known example of the, way we, of the way love moves us toward people in need comes from the life of Mother Teresa. The first time she rescued a leper dying on the streets of Calcutta, picking him up, feeding him, and cleaning him, the man asked her why she was doing it. She responded, because I love you. This is what love does. It moves us toward other people, not away from them, even when their needs are overwhelming. And we see Jesus not only compassionate and moving towards the needs of these people, we see his compassion towards his disciples. He didn't dwell on their insult. When they, reje when they rejected him and they, they, they had a faithless response, he didn't dwell on the insult. Because why? What would that do? He'd embrace his emotions and it would be all over his face and he would act out. He saw their need. And he understood their frustration. He was thoughtful. He was considerate. And he acted for their benefit. He fed them too. Not only did he feed them, but he allowed them to participate. Even when they pushed back, he allowed them to distribute the food. He allowed them to collect what was remaining. He taught them about his power. Even when they were little jerks, he taught them about his power. And when we're irritated, do we allow ourselves to be moved for others? Or do we just try to defend ourselves? Or when we're insulted, do we dwell on the insult or do we dwell on the person behind it? When we're taken for granted, do we look to help others or help ourselves? 
Love moves towards others regardless of what others have done because love's compassionate. So love isn't irritable. It doesn't embrace emotions. It, do, it doesn't display frustration. It doesn't act out. Love is controlled and love is compassionate. You know, I wish every week we talked about love, I could show you a video that I think purpose, like, like just perfectly encapsulated what we talked about. And so far that hasn't happened, but today I have one. Um, back in 2009, you might have seen this. It, it went viral. It was very popular. It was, it was on the news. Um, just, just watch the video. You'll see. Maybe you've seen it. You'll see. I love that video. Uh, one, it just shows you like there's no reason to be a Phillies fan ever. Uh, only bad things will happen to you. But two, I, I love it because the dad has a choice. Like he, he caught that. It was a great catch. He had this souvenir. He gives it to his little girl and then it is gone, right? Like it is gone. And so do you think he felt a little frustrated? I think so. I think so. It, there, there it goes. There's his, his, his great catch, his, his souvenir. It is gone, right? It's another thing of, of, this is why I can't have nice things. It is gone. And yet, what was his response? He was controlled. Did you see his face? He smiled. Like he was smiling. Was he smiling inside? I'll be honest, I'm a dad. Probably not, all right? But he's smiling. And, and then what does he do? He doesn't sit there and pout. He doesn't get on to his daughter. Why? Because his daughter doesn't need to be get on to in that moment. He doesn't need him to pout. What does she need? He needs to, she just needs him to hug her. So that's what he does. And I watched an interview later, and, he's, and they said, you know, we noticed the way you responded and how you just hugged your daughter. She wasn't crying. She wasn't upset. Why did you do that? You know, it looked like you were trying to comfort her, but she didn't really need comfort. And he said, I just wanted her to know that she did nothing wrong and that her daddy loved her. He wasn't thinking about the ball. He wasn't thinking about, oh my gosh, why did I hand that to her, right? He wasn't even thinking about how frustrated he was with himself. He was thinking about her. And that's what love does. Love controls itself. It doesn't embrace emotions. It doesn't, it doesn't wear it all over its face. It doesn't act out. That's what hate does. Love controls itself. And then love thinks about others. And love acts for the benefit of others. Love is compassionate. And why do we do it? We do it because that's what our dad is like. Look at Psalm 103.8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. I've never thrown a foul ball that my dad gave me back onto the field. I've never done that. I've never, um, I've never done anything like silly like that in my relationship with God or whatever. But I've done horrible things in my relationship with God. Horrible things. My sin put him on the cross. The weight of my sin, the things that I've done, the choices I've made were on him. I've neglected him. I've denied him. I've embarrassed him. I've misrepresented him. I've ignored him. I've insulted him. 
I've done horrible things. And yet, I'm embraced as his child. Why? Because he's compassionate and he's gracious and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in love. As we've talked about love all these weeks, all we've talked about is as we are children of God, we just want to show people what our dad is like. How, how much, what a greater picture of our dad than, than to go out and for us to be compassionate, to go out and to control how we feel when we're wronged. Because that's what our dad does. Our dad doesn't reach down and crush me every time I embarrass him. He doesn't reach down and crush me every time uh, I'm unfaithful. He doesn't do that. He's compassionate and he's gracious and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in love. What a wonderful picture. We're going to respond in song. We've got some other stuff we're going to do at the end of the service. But before we get there, we're going to respond in song. I'll ask the band to come back up because I want us to respond. I want those of us in this room, believers in this room, maybe just respond to that scripture. Just respond to that scripture that our God is compassionate. We've talked about this type of love. We're talking about his love for us. Our God is slow to anger. He controls himself and he's abounding in love. He's compassionate. So maybe we just need to sing that to him. For some in this room, maybe you never felt that way about God. Maybe you've just felt fear. And I don't mean a healthy fear. I mean terror of God. Or you just think that, you know what, like my sin, where I've been, the choices I've made, there's no way I can be accepted. Did you see what we just read about our God? He is gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. And he says that whosoever will may come. Whosoever will. Whoever. Whoever believes in me will be saved. Whoever. That's you. Whoever you are, you can be forgiven and you can be made a child of God today. Whoever you are, wherever you came from, whatever you've done, whoever. So maybe today is the day you come. Can we bow our head and close our eyes? Before we, before we respond, before we respond in song, believers, just start praying for those around you. For those in this room that I was talking straight to you, you're terrified of God. You don't want to think about him. You don't want to think because you're afraid. You know you deserve hell. You know you deserve punishment. You know you deserve to be pushed away from him. And let me tell you this. You do. And so do I. But his word is clear. That he's kind. And he's gracious. And he's compassionate. And he's abounding in love. And his word is clear. That whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. His word is clear. That if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and he's just to cleanse us. Whoever. So if you're in this room and you need to come to God today, you need to experience his forgiveness. You need to be saved. You need a fresh start. You want to come to him today for the first time. Would you tell him? In the quietness of your heart and mind, you don't have to say it out loud. Just right now, just tell him. God, please, make me new. God, forgive me. Give me a new start. God, I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose again. God, I want your life. Make me your child. Forgive me. Give me a new start in Jesus' name.
Amen.